So when you start messaging about communism and socialism, being a part of uh, movements for racial justice, being an integral part of movements for racial justice in the United States, and you have people hearing this messaging and look out the window and there are a lot of black people out marching, you know, that easily makes a jump for them, right? They start talking about these movements for racial justice as a communist plot in disguise, right? There were a lot of misinformation agents in South Florida whose messaging really relied on this whole timeline of protests and the coming election to really push a narrative that the Democratic Party was actually planning a communist coup and that, you know, the action on the streets was a reflection and a part of that plan. And then they would make connections to gun legislation and the defund or abolish police movements. This whole thing to them seemed as if come November, a, a communist government would reign over the United States. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 17th, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Jaime Longoria, an investigative researcher at First Draft, where he monitors information disorder in Latino or Latinx communities in the United States and in Latin America. In the run-up to the 2020 election, there was an explosion of press stories about mis- and disinformation in Spanish-speaking communities. But this is hardly a new phenomenon. We talked to Jaime about the long-standing and ongoing information disorder in these communities, how it is or isn't distinctive, why it tends to go under the radar in public conversation, and what can be done about it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 17th. No one expects the Spanish disinformation. Jaime, thank you for joining us. We wanted to have you on because there was a really an explosion of stories in mainstream English language media about dis and misinformation in Spanish in the last few weeks around the U.S. 2020 election, a lot of which presented it like this was sort of a hot new issue that had never come up before. But I'm guessing none of this was news to you. Uh, so I wanted to start off just by asking you about your background, if you could give our listeners an introduction to the focus of your work. Yeah, so, well, thank you so much for having me, Quinta and Evelyn. It's uh, it's really great to be here. But yeah, I mean, I haven't been doing uh, mis- and disinformation research for that long, um, specifically looking at this community. I actually started off as like a fact checker uh, and a data editor, and then I moved to NBC as a researcher. And I sort of have been sort of flirting with a lot of this type of work for so long. One of my first jobs was actually doing research for an organization called Political Research Associates, which does research on the political right in the United States. But I actually started at First Draft this summer. And I mean, I always get the question about like, you know, like early in the summer, but I just get the question, how come we're not seeing a lot of coverage on Latinx misinformation? It's really hard to understand. People don't get it. Like I was here, like I've been here for like six months and I'm already an expert in it. So that says a lot, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of, of resources that don't go towards these communities, so these like Spanish speaking communities. And there's a real lack of nuance there, right? Like disinformation in Spanish is really nebulous. It's not straightforward. And it has a lot of other aspects to it that really complicate the research behind it. It's like, not only do you have to deal with like, the fact that like, uh, a lot of platforms don't do well with other languages, languages other than English. 
But also a lot of mis and disinformation in Spanish is behind closed doors. A lot of people that speak Spanish use apps that are closed network, like WhatsApp. And we've seen that like, you know, time and time again, moderation in Spanish language has been very, very difficult for a number of platforms. Excellent. So we're hoping today to try and get a handle on the scale, causes, differences of misinformation and disinformation in Spanish, and also some of the factors that you mentioned about why it might get less attention or be harder to track and get less resources. But I think before we can do that, uh, we kind of need to map the space and maybe you know present the case of, of why it's an important topic that we should pay attention to. Um, so can you describe a little bit about, in, in broad terms, what you've seen in terms of mis- and disinformation in Latino or Latinx communities and in Spanish more generally? Right. So one of the biggest tactics that I've seen is that there's a lot of sort of cross-pollination between mis- and disinformation from English language spaces into Latinx and Spanish-speaking spaces. So that's a huge factor here. And I think it's something that often sort of goes under the radar because a lot of people just assume it's the same content, right? The same debunks will work. So we don't have to really worry about it that much. But for me, the main issue is that when you look at like the news ecosystem in English language, it's enormous. In Spanish, usually, I mean, people watch Univision or Telemundo. Um, so we're talking about very different resources here. And I've heard the argument over and over that there is actually no mis- and disinformation targeting Spanish-speaking or Latinx people because of the fact that a lot of it is translation. And that's sort of like a complicated argument to make that really just works at a very surface level. Like, of course, you know, translations of English language disinformation don't cater to these like preconceived notions of what researchers outside of the community would think would be effective in Latinx communities and Spanish speaking communities. And I think that's that's like a huge deficit, right? Politically and culturally speaking, there is little difference between what would concern someone who's a Spanish-speaking person in the United States and someone who speaks English. The other thing is that translation in itself is a way to target people, right? If there was no interest in disseminating some disinformation in Latinx communities and Spanish-speaking communities, nobody would translate. But a bigger sort of more platform-oriented argument against that notion that there is no specific targeting is that moderation in Spanish is really, really difficult. I mean, a lot of my colleagues who do this work in English rely on a lot of keywords to, to sort of find out what the big narrative is. Oftentimes, these keywords are translated uh, when people spread mis- and disinformation in Spanish. And a lot of platforms also sort of emulate the type of work that we do to, to moderate that content, right? They go after keyword, familiar keywords that are used uh, around certain narratives. And those keywords just don't exist in, in, in English when you're talking about narratives in Spanish. And another kind of bizarre example that doesn't have to do with keywords is that earlier this year, when YouTube announced that it was taking, it was taking down channels that had like QAnon-associated content, we actually noticed that a lot of the QAnon channels in Spanish weren't affected at all. And some of these even had like QAnon in in some tags and in their in their channel names as well. So moderation uh, when it comes to languages outside of English has has been a historical challenge that platforms have have said that they are trying to tackle. But from what we've seen, it's it's been really difficult. And 
another huge danger in that is that there's a huge potential for like zombie content, sort of like mis and disinformation that comes back from the dead, right? Because it's still out there floating around in that ecosystem. It's in another language, right? But it's very easy to translate it back into English and it'll jump right back into those communities as well. Yeah, can I get you to expand on that point just a little bit more? So I don't speak Spanish. And so when I hear you say content moderation is a lot harder in Spanish, I'm really curious about that. And I have a bunch of questions. Is there something that's intrinsically harder about content moderation in Spanish? Or is it just that so far to date, platforms haven't given enough resources and researchers as well, and there's not enough attention paid to it. And so things like the translation of keywords that you mentioned, that's still sort of at a very um, underdeveloped level. And the things like understanding of context and political trends and culture is still sort of lacking? Or is there something that makes it more challenging even beyond those issues? I think it's it's sort of a mystery when we talk about the platforms, like why this is so difficult. I don't know. It doesn't seem like an issue that would be that difficult to take care of. I mean, it's something that I wake up every day and I do it. It's my day job. You know, uh, if I can do it, I don't understand why it's so difficult for platforms to actually find this problematic content. The other thing is like more on the on, on the researcher end of this, it's it's there is a lack of resources. I think on at first draft, we are a team of three that deal with racialized mis and disinformation. And specifically in Spanish, there are two of us. And out there in this like research this disinfo researcher world, um, I only know of one other person who does the same type of work that me and my colleague do. So the resources have been lacking. And I think in part it does have a lot to do with this misunderstanding and this misconception of there not being exact targeting, right? And whenever I get asked these questions, it's kind of like I've had conversations with reporters that end up a, a little bit disappointed when I tell them like, yeah, it's a lot of the same stuff that we're seeing in English, but there is a historical nuance behind that that makes it more effective with these communities, but these are kind of the same narratives sometimes because people come to me and they're hoping to find sort of this like really specific thing, maybe about immigration. I'm not sure. Like it's that those questions have always confounded me, right? It, It seems like a lot of the general public would assume that the misinformation that would be targeting Latinos would rely on a lot of the tropes that 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 we as a general public have about this community. That's really interesting. Can I ask you to dig into that a little bit more specifically on your point about how the historical nuance in some of these cases sort of makes things play a little differently or not? Can you just talk more about that? Sure. I think one thing to remember that's always really important when we're talking about mis and disinformation is that in order to get you to share this stuff, they're really hoping to like co-opt your emotional response, right? Anger, fear, like that, that type of content that makes you fearful or that gets you really riled up, you're more likely to share that. And not only share it online, but offline, right? And I think if we look at the context of, of this past year, um, I mean, I think the two biggest topics that we could talk about are the election and the pandemic, right? And in both of these, we saw the fact that like historical context has played a huge role in the mis and disinformation that we saw um, in Spanish. Specifically with the election, we saw a lot of fear-mongering about like the Democratic Party being uh, socialist and communist. And more recently, I've been seeing connections being made 
toward the uh, Chinese Communist Party that are unevidenced. But most importantly, I think when we talk about this election cycle, there was a lot of content out there in Spanish language that was connecting the Black Lives Matter movement to communist and socialist ideas and also painting Black Lives Matter as a violent group, an inherently violent group. And for me, it was sort of, it was clear that, um, you know, the historical context here had a huge role. When we talk about um, Latinx or Spanish-speaking communities, we oftentimes don't talk about the anti-Blackness that exists in those communities. And that was a huge tool that was being used to disseminate a lot of this mis- and disinformation. And when you look at it in historical context, and when you look at the communities that were being specifically targeted with these sorts of narratives, specifically South Florida was a huge epicenter for this. Um, we're talking Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, Cubans. They all have a history of revolutionary movements in their countries. And um, in Latin America, a lot of these movements uh, were sort of organized and propelled to the streets by a lot of Black people and Indigenous people. So when you start messaging about communism and socialism being a part of uh, movements for racial justice and being an integral part of movements for racial justice in the United States, and you have people hearing this messaging and look out the window and there are a lot of Black people out marching, you know, that easily makes a jump for them, right? They start talking about these movements for racial justice as a communist plot in disguise, right? There were a lot of misinformation agents in South Florida whose messaging really relied on this timeline of protests and the coming election to really push a narrative that the Democratic Party was actually planning a communist coup and that, you know, the action on the streets was a reflection and a part of that plan. And then they would make connections to gun legislation and the defund or abolish police movements. This whole thing to them seemed as if come November, a, a communist government would reign over the United States, so to speak. Again, there's there's so much there that I want to dig into. But as we do, I think it, it touches on a point that has been much discussed again in, in English language US media that I think is is worth digging into, which is obviously Latinos in the United States are not a monolith. Um, <laughs> there are many different communities. There are ties to different countries, different political traditions, different racial and ethnic heritages, which you kind of touch on there. Is it even useful to talk about mis- and disinformation in Spanish in the United States as a monolith, or do we need to be way more particular in talking about different communities? Like a, a white Cuban is obviously going to have a very different relationship than someone who is, you know, an indigenous immigrant from Mexico. Right. I think that's a really complex question. And I would, I mean, I think if I could pick and choose a good answer, I'd say that it has both benefits to talk about it in a larger sense of what Latinx disinformation looks like, but also, um, you know, focus in on smaller communities, right? I think that's a, a, like a really good point that at, at its core, Latinx doesn't make any other sort of connection other than geographic. And there are so many communities in that space. But I think there is still benefit to looking at the disinformation that comes into these communities, both at a, like a global level and a smaller communal level, right? Because these narratives aren't sort of isolated. There is a lot of cross-pollination even between um, Latinx communities, uh, whether that be like 
people in South Florida or like Mexican Americans along the US Mexico border in Texas. I think one thing to note is that as much distinction as there is between the more mainstream conservative white political movements in the United States, there is also a lot of likeness within Latinx communities. There are people that have the same political beliefs that are Mexican-American or Cuban-American or Venezuelan-American, right? So I think my best answer to that question would be like, I would like both. I want people to talk about it as this whole global problem that is Latinx mis and disinformation. But I also really want people to remember that you have to zoom in a lot of times because the targeting is very different. Okay, great. So keeping all of those caveats in mind that we've just covered, you know, that they're not a monolith or that the communities aren't a monolith, um, that this is an under-researched area and that there's uh, a lot of opacity even on what's going on. And and that's partly intentional by the platforms. Continuing with our mapping of the space, do you have a sense of how much of this story is about disinformation, as in like the false false information knowingly shared to cause harm by some of the disinformation agents, like you mentioned, um, versus misinformation and innocently spread false information. And so I guess to put this another way, is this a story of the exploitation of an information ecosystem that doesn't get enough attention, doesn't have enough resources in content moderation devoted to it? Or is it a story about there just not being as much authoritative information in those languages and in those communities reaching those people And so therefore, there's more misinformation thriving. Right. I think when we talk about this sort of idea of whether it's misinformation or disinformation targeting these communities, it's really important to note that there's a huge data void uh, when we talk about politics and health, when we talk about a lot of topics in in Spanish-speaking communities. For the most part, I think I would categorize a lot of the information disorder that affects Latinx and Spanish-speaking communities um, as misinformation. You know, it's a lot of out-of-context posts, a lot of uh, misinformed arguments that, you know, have a tendency to spread. In terms of uh, disinformation, although I have not seen it that often, it's still very, very much present especially when it comes to the vaccine and COVID-19, especially in Latin America. But we have seen RT and Sputnik and their sort of Spanish language offshoot outlets sort of spread uh, a lot of information uh, about the Sputnik V vaccine. And in that process, they're sort of trying to discredit the work of Pfizer and Purdue and other companies that are producing the vaccine. So that is still there. That's definitely still there. but. In terms of making that distinction, sometimes it's very difficult to know, right? I I don't know for sure that, you know, uh, one of the accounts that I monitor from this guy in South Florida, like, I don't know for sure whether or not he thinks that there's an actual communist plot happening. It seems like he does. But when the camera turns off, there's really no way of knowing, right? Another thing that could clue you into that is that I have seen a number of people sort of hawking this COVID-19 remedy that's called CDS, it's chlorine dioxide solution, uh, which was huge in Latin America. I think lots of people um, who speak Spanish may have encountered this, but there was this one pastor who was sort of hawking these like bottles of CDS and he would tell you, you know, like, if you want to know more about CDS, just send me a message on WhatsApp. 
so like for me it was like there was this notion like is he selling this stuff i don't know if he is then you know this is profit motivated and on youtube i've seen a number of, of people that disseminate political misinformation and who also like sort of talk a lot about QAnon conspiracy theories a lot of them have like bitcoin training websites where they'll like train you how to make money off of bitcoin and stuff so there's obviously like a monetary component here but in terms of overall it, it's difficult with these individuals to know if it is disinformation per se but when we have state actors using sort of this media apparatus to disseminate narratives it, it's a little bit clearer but like I said, overall, I think it's more misinformation than anything. And it's the fact that, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, the media ecosystem in Spanish language is a lot more limited than uh, what we would see in English language. So there is more space to, to take advantage of this information ecosystem by bad actors. One example of that was earlier in the year, I was able to identify an, a couple of Spanish language opinion sites that were publishing pretty incendiary uh, articles. I believe one of the articles also blamed Black Lives Matter uh, for the shooting of two LA Sheriff's Department officers, which was just blatant misinformation. But what we learned on this piece that I co-bylined with 538 was that the person behind these websites I w was able to easily identify the fact that there was this like lack of opinion uh, outlets in Spanish. Um, there was this data void, and he was able to fill it. And of course, he made money off of those websites at the beginning. They slowly became unprofitable, and uh, he shut them down uh, when we reached out to him. But nonetheless, I think that's a really good example of why and how a lot of misinformation is able to spread. If there's a space, if there's a data deficit, if there's a data void, someone will come around and fill it. And a lot of the times, Spanish-speaking communities have absolutely no say in who that is. I found that 538 story fascinating in part because, so you describe the, this website network as a part of a misinformation industrial complex. And as you described, there's sort of this really interesting tension in the piece where the person behind them is very upfront about the fact that he started these websites because it seemed like there was a business opportunity. Mm -hmm. And as you note, it's not even clear if he speaks Spanish. Right. <laughs> um, but then at the same time, you also write, you know, the sites weren't particularly profitable. He didn't seem to particularly mind about shutting them down. So like, which is it? Or is <laughs> I guess another way to put it is like, is this kind of like the gold rush where it seems like there's a lot of profit to be made, but then people rush in and maybe it actually turns out that though there may be a data void to fill, it's not actually particularly profitable to fill it. Yeah, I think that's, that's like one question that I always ask myself when I like confront these things, right? Right now I'm looking at another website that I'm, that I'm sure it purely disseminates misinformation. And I'm thinking, are they trying to make money or are they not? I, I, I think like a lot of times you'll see that these websites don't really have a lot of traction. They don't have a lot of shares. They don't have a lot of likes when they post on, on Facebook or Twitter. And it, I think that that's the answer to that question is like, I don't really know, but I don't think it's a gold rush, you know, like maybe these platforms or maybe these outlets haven't got the right formula, right? But more and more, I think like the misinformation that's out there is misinformation that a lot of people in Spanish speaking communities get from their the people around them, right? 
these outlets don't need to exist. Um, and I think the fact that they weren't as profitable kind of shows us that, right? At the beginning, I, there were a lot of articles that were from, from this like small network that were getting a lot of shares and getting a lot of attention, but that slowly died down. And I'm not sure of the reason. So the answer to that question is a little, is a little complex, but I don't think from the examples that I've seen, I don't think there's a huge gold rush, but I think there's still an opportunity there because, you know, like RT in Espanol has more followers than RT in English. And this Sputnik Mundo page on Facebook has so many likes and their articles usually get good traction. And I'm sure the Russian government isn't doing this because they're banking on like misinformation <laughs> in Spanish, but, you know, it can be done. There are ways to create these platforms um, in Spanish that can be really, really effective at disseminating messages to Spanish-speaking communities that aren't like the average, like Telemundo or Univision, right? There are a lot of these websites that have different ties or that do have nefarious, uh, a nefarious background. Okay, so if that was a complicated question, uh, I'm going to follow up with a really simple one for you. One of the stories coming out of the election that seemed to surprise people was the scale of Latino support for Trump. And some have been tempted to draw a direct line between the sudden stories about mis- and disinformation in these communities and those results. And I feel bad for putting this to you because it's kind of an impossible question. It rests on so many unknowables. It's going to take time to deconstruct what happened in the election. Uh, tracking and quantifying mis- and disinformation is notoriously fraught and, by the sounds of things, even harder in Spanish than in other areas. Discerning effects of that content on actual voter behavior is like the holy grail of political science. So, you know, it's it, it, this is an impossible question. At the same time, uh, given the prominence of the narrative, uh, we can't not ask for your thoughts on it. So what's your reaction to that, that idea that disinformation is one of the key causes of the Latino vote? Hmm. I think more generally that notion that Latinos voted the way they did because they saw a lot of misinformation is kind of fraught, right? And I say kind of because that completely denies the fact that there are a lot of conservative Latinos out there already, you know? These communities exist and they carry a lot of political weight. They have a lot of political power behind them. The other thing is that even though that is true, I think mis- and disinformation did have an effect on uh, on people. I mean, you can say that like it may have galvanized, and I'm going to use Mays because like May is, is a safe place for me to be because this is a complicated question. But you could say that it may have galvanized some people to, you know, go protest, go out on the street. It may have pushed people more to the extremes. And it may have pushed some people who were kind of undecided in a specific way. But as you said, it, it's, it's hard to know. And this is one of the questions that I get all the time that I tend to sort of brush off a lot with just saying, like, you know, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. And it is true that it is hard to know. But I think. As researchers, we, we really do need to begin to step away uh, from just like following these narratives and monitoring them and talk a little bit more about like the best ways to quantify this, right? Uh, quantifying the effects of misinformation, especially in Spanish, is, is kind of, it's nearly impossible, even if it's on social media. I mean, WhatsApp is a headache for me. So much stuff is out there. 
and I rarely can see how much interaction it's gotten before, you know, it's sent it to a group that I'm in or before, you know, someone like my mom and my dad is like, hey, have you seen this? I got it over the weekend. It, it's really hard online and it's even harder offline, right? Because a lot of these conversations also do happen at the dinner table. And I think uh, we need to take on that responsibility of uh, devising ways that we can better understand how this happens and how it affects people's sentiment. I mean, I mean, there has been so much research looking back at 2016 and what happened then, but a lot of that research is imperfect, right? Um, a lot of it <laughs> uses people who only use Facebook on a computer, for example, or people who only use Facebook or Twitter. And not a lot of it goes into like other platforms that may be uh, more useful for disseminating this information to people that are might be a little bit more receptive to 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 being pushed to the extremes, like 4chan or 8kun or other parts of the anonymous web. I think the answer to that question is uh, yes, but like I think yes, misinformation was really important because it did affect a lot of what people were seeing and a lot of things that people sort of believed offhand but in terms of how that affected people's vote in terms of how that affected how willing someone was to be able to go out and protest you know we can never say at least not now and i think that's something that i i mean i think that question is just it's important in and of itself to ask right because it points at a huge deficit in the kind of work that i do and it's one that we're like really hyper aware of before we dig into the the aspect of of WhatsApp, which we definitely want to talk about, I wanted to ask one follow up question on this, which is your your point about how focusing too much on the role of misinformation and disinformation and possibly changing votes can sort of ignore or underplay or overwrite the actual political beliefs and experiences of of some people. So we've talked about material describing the Democrats as socialists. I feel like I've seen, you know, so much stuff suggesting that that constitutes misinformation, but you could also argue that, you know, like it's effective political messaging by Republicans, right? That, you know, there's a way for the Democratic Party to sort of dodge blame for a failure to reach out to Latinos or Latinx people by pointing to misinformation rather than like grappling with the fact that like maybe Cuban Americans and Venezuelan Americans in Florida like just really like Trump. Right. <laughs> I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's precisely true, I think. But even then, it's really difficult to know. Like there's a, there's this string of content that is precisely about this, that sort of co-ops these like struggles of where Spanish-speaking communities and Latinx communities fall on the political spectrum, and it co-ops them to push them to the right. There are these movements called Lexit and Blexit, um, both targeting Latinx and Black people. So it, it's difficult to know what sort of constitutes just like political rhetoric, right? And what constitutes uh, mis- and disinformation. You know, these things aren't outright mis- and disinformation, but I think that another really important point when we look at this is that the work that we do is much larger than just looking at one social post, right? We string together these narratives that are coming about online. And part of these narratives were to really amplify the sort of mistrust or the sense of being left behind by a specific party. In this case, it was the Democratic Party. There was this campaign called the Walk Away Campaign that really showcased a number of people of color who 
who were renouncing the party and leaving and becoming Republicans. And there was a lot of amplification behind that. So it's hard to know, like, even when we do talk about, like, when we do earnestly talk about the fact that there are a lot of conservative Latinos out there and that a lot of Latinos just gravitated toward the Republican Party this year, it's hard to know how many of those people saw, you know, this other video of, uh, you know, a Mexican-American 20-something living in Texas talking about the reasons why he's leaving the party. And all of these reasons may not be completely true per se, but it's, the, but it's his reason. And then we see those being sort of promoted by, by this huge movement that at its face seems like a movement for people of color to be able to decide their own political fates. But the narrative that they're building is ultimately just to shuttle people towards the Republican Party um, and towards conservatism. It's hard to say even in that conversation. So yeah, I think, you know, like a lot of these answers that I've been giving you, it's a little bit yes and a little bit no, which is really frustrating. And I'm sorry. No, don't don't be sorry. I think it's the sign of a, a well-informed researcher, honestly, in this space. I don't think we are anywhere near to have, like, why can't you answer this uh, this uh, perpetual <laughs> problem uh, about uh, um, political messaging and disinformation? Uh, that's, that's not why we wanted you on, uh, so, so no apologies. Um, let's go back to the role of WhatsApp then. So I think much of the public conversation sort of seems to constantly and consistently underestimate the role of WhatsApp in this dynamic. And I think that's for a variety of reasons. You know, it's harder to see into a private encrypted messaging app. And so there's less information, which means less research, which means less scrutiny. But I also think more broadly, many English speaking Americans don't appreciate how much other communities rely on it. So you said this is really hard for you to to track the role of WhatsApp and that it's a constant headache. Talk to us about that and what role WhatsApp plays. Yeah, I, I mean, I think when I was interviewed for this job, like one of the questions was like, which platforms are like, do you want to look at? And I would say that I got this job solely because I was like, WhatsApp, you know, it's it's all at WhatsApp. That's the that's the place to look. And I came into this thinking like, how hard can it be? Um, and I've discovered that it is, <laughs> it is in fact very difficult. WhatsApp is sort of this weird, like, ether, this like liminal space where everything goes on and a lot of things go in, not a lot comes out. And when it comes out, it's almost unrecognizable. There are a couple of patterns that mis- and disinformation take when they interact with WhatsApp. Um, Sometimes I've seen like, you know, people are sharing videos from YouTube, Facebook, uh, or Instagram. They put them into WhatsApp and then like they put them into WhatsApp for people to, for other people to see, um, to consume. Other times I've seen like content that is just like a raw video uh, that is just being shared around WhatsApp that goes into a lot of groups that people send to individuals or, you know, they could be in like this group where they follow this conspiracy theorist YouTuber um, and someone drops it in. I'll grab that and send it to my family members uh, and so on and so forth. And I've also seen a lot of like individual messages, like sometimes messages will just like catch on like messages warning about COVID or messages like warning about protests or, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's kind of, it's a mess, honestly. Um, and for a researcher like me, it's, it's really difficult to get in there because first of all, like when you open the app, you just have your contacts in there. Uh, so what you have to do is like, you have to actively go out there and look for these spaces. Like what are the groups that people are in? 
where are people discussing politics? Where are they discussing COVID? And then when you get there, you have to sort of look at the content that's in there and let that like lead you into other spaces. You could also just do like searches on social media for like groups that are being shared, but it's really hard to find, right? Because these groups are not often labeled as like, hey, this is a misinformation WhatsApp group for, for political mis and disinformation in Spanish. It's, it's more complex than that. And the other thing is like, for example, I spoke earlier about like my mom will sometimes send me something uh, that she encountered on WhatsApp. And I ask her like, where, where did you get this from? And she tells me, Oh, like your tia sent it to me. And I'll go ask my aunt and she'll say, Oh yeah, so-and-so sent it to me. So <laughs> a lot of times content that exists out there relies on these like interpersonal chains to, to reach its audience. And in those cases, I don't know how many people have seen it. I don't know how effective it's been uh, at producing a response in like the comments per se, because there really are no comments. And the other thing is like tracking down a source sometimes is completely impossible. Sometimes there are videos out there that have no context for who made this. Or who is in this video? Who like who is this record? This audio recording of? So, a as tough as tracking down mis and disinformation in Spanish is on like mainstream platforms, these closed network groups are are, are kind of like a dark void at this point. Uh, that we, uh, my colleague and I at First Draft, have been working for months to get a good grasp of what that ecosystem looks like and and what is being shared. I imagine that would be a lot easier if the groups were named Political Disinformation in Spanish 2020. Uh, it would right. make your, <laughs> your life a lot simpler. I guess I'm curious for your thoughts. You mentioned a number of the characteristics of WhatsApp that make it different to the social media platforms that we spend a lot of time talking about traditionally, like Facebook and, and YouTube and Twitter, where there's more algorithmic moderation that feeds the content to you, that amplifies certain kinds of content that's more sensationalist and uh, polarizing. Whereas in some ways, not quite, but in some ways, WhatsApp is kind of glorified text messaging. Um, like there is still the, the possibility to blast to a whole bunch more people, although they have you know implemented some restrictions on that in the last year or so around being able to forward to to fewer people. And I'm curious uh, for your thoughts on whether that creates a difference in the kinds of content moderation that we should should want or would be preferable or more effective in a space like WhatsApp versus the more public square algorithmically moderated platforms or what kind of interventions you would want to see on a platform like WhatsApp. That's a tough question. Not only because I think infrastructurally these platforms are completely different, but I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's kind of like a sort of brave new world, right? I, I mean, I think like there is this conversation that we have to have about the fact that like WhatsApp is sort of acting, as you mentioned, it's like a glorified texting app. It, it, it's sort of acting in, the, in a way that a telephone company might be acting, right? Like they don't know the type of information that we're sending. But then we have this discussion about like, you know, just like Facebook and Twitter are coming under fire for their accountability, we we haven't really had that conversation about WhatsApp, and I think it is needed. I don't know. I'm kind of stumped with that question. I think having some way that people could effectively flag things would be would be good. But then again, I think 
the the platform itself is just too complex to keep up with everything with every piece of information that goes in and out especially because it's not as public as as these other as these other platforms right i think you know your question is sort of leads me to to think like why aren't we talking about whatsapp in the same way you know um and that might have to do with the types of audiences that are on there I don't think a lot of English speaking US based people actually use this app so that might have to do uh, a lot with why we don't really talk about this especially since like there there's another example is like WeChat a lot of Chinese Americans and Chinese nationals use WeChat and we don't really talk about that that much um a lot of the conversation has to do with Facebook and Twitter and I think on those platforms there are effective ways to moderate but in terms of of these closed messaging apps i think it's too nebulous to moderate i think but that doesn't mean that the, these platforms are off scot free right i think you know allowing people to have a mechanism for reporting might be a good idea and allowing people to see disclaimers about misinformation might be good as well but i don't know how that would be done on a platform like whatsapp i think it's a It's a really good question that in me sparks this realization that we don't often talk about moderation at all when we talk about closed networking apps. We just talk about how difficult it is and how difficult it's been to to sort of find out what's going on. I feel like I should apologize for peppering you with all these, you know, <laughs> we're peppering you with these insanely hard questions. So let me transition to something that's talking about research that you have done, and so hopefully will be a, a little bit easier. We've been talking about political dis and misinformation. Obviously, science is certainly inflected with politics, but we wanted to talk as well about health misinformation and the pandemic. You touched a little bit on the role of sort of religiously inflected misinformation that you'd seen. I wanted to ask you more about that and what other kinds of messages you've seen percolating around COVID. Right. So I think when we talk about health misinformation in Spanish speaking communities, it's a little bit of a mess and I think that's why it's really easy to to disseminate mis and disinformation. I think here too there is a lot of uh historical context. I mean for me and and the community that I come from, the first thing that pops into my mind is like the use of like DDT at the border crossing in the early um 20th century and DDT is like a pesticide that would be sprayed on on people crossing the border but like a lot of latinos are like really skeptical of the US medical industrial complex especially when the government is involved for historical reasons like this but also looking at the effects that covid has had on the latino population i think it's really easy for people to to get the idea that like you know this vaccine might not be trusted right if a lot of people who are latinx have had really bad experiences dealing with this pandemic they're much less likely to understand why you know this thing will all of a sudden make everything feel like better they might be less trustworthy of it but jumping specifically into the topic of religion religion is is really important to a lot of latinx people um especially a lot of like older generations like my parents i'm uh for example uh first generation my parents are immigrants um and a lot of people in their generation who are immigrants like really um hold dear their religious beliefs and i think it's very dangerous to have uh, a pastor or a priest or any religious figure talk about you know health misinformation 
because it's sort of has in its in, in its own way this other like tier of influence um, that goes beyond in my mind it goes beyond government goes beyond community goes beyond everything else just the simple fact that like when you're in a religious space this is a lot of the messaging that you're hearing is supposed to be like the voice of god right and if the voice of god is telling you to drink bleach a lot of people might be susceptible to believing that or might be less willing to question it right if a pastor is talking about how the covid-19 vaccine carries the uh, mark of the beast you know that's another thing that like to me is really concerning right because these like narratives that perpetuate really really harmful behavior that have been proven to sort of uh, affect public health outcomes they go missed by a lot of people who cover mis and disinformation because for a lot of folks religion is like a no go it's like nobody really wants to touch it because it's complex and the other thing is that like the effectiveness of this messaging is so powerful you know it's not like these aren't not the conventional like vaccine hesitancy narratives that you find in a lot of like english speaking communities in spanish speaking spaces a lot of these are actually tied to to religion and a lot of specifically christian religion and that spans from um you know evangelical pastors to catholic priests there was one example i think that came up that was pretty pertinent was a catholic priest in spain who was telling his congregation in this enormous church uh, this enormous lavish church that the covid vaccine was developed with infant parts and that you know people shouldn't probably not take it because these like infants were aborted or something like that i think religious mis and disinformation is such a, a a powerful way a very powerful tool to to get that messaging across without much interrogation not that i want to like advertise that to people but you know <laughs> it is the truth okay so to close out i can't help but feel that there are just huge unanswered questions here even more so than in this space in english which is really saying something because we are you know barely at the beginning even in english but that also as a researcher you seem completely outgunned uh i'm sorry that the idea that you can like count on one hand the number of people that work directly on this is pretty insane so what do you think is missing what would make your life easier in the next year as you look out across uh 2021 uh what do we need do you think we need a of more attention on this from the media, more disclosures and transparency from platforms or just more content moderation resources from platforms or do we need sort of more variety in Spanish language media in America or dedicated resources towards authoritative information reaching these communities? All of the above I suspect is the answer, but you know, if you had sort of one big ask or or one sort of key thing that you would would like, what would you focus on? I think that the media landscape in Spanish language is very weak. At times I would find that uh stories sort of veering on disinformation were being broadcast on evening news. So for me I think what would really really help is that, you know, we we start taking Spanish language media in this country a little more seriously. Sometimes I I find that a lot of times the stories that are published are 
direct translations of, of you know stories in English, and and that's fine. You know, a lot of these communities do have those same interests, like we've talked about before. But you know, it takes a lot of cultural context to understand what's important and what's not. And not only do we need to take Spanish language media companies a little more seriously, and I would like for there to be more of a diversity in that aspect, but also it's really important to inject uh, a lot of diverse thought into English language media as well. Because not every Latino speaks Spanish. A lot of us are bilingual, but I, I, I know for a fact, like I rarely consume uh, Univision and Telemundo out of my own volition. But I think just taking into account the fact that a majority of people in this country will soon be like Latinos is something really important and vital that we need to keep in mind. And I think the media ecosystem needs to adjust to that, right? That we're going to have a huge audience that not only consumes information in Spanish, but also in English. And all of that is to say that I think the best and the most important way to counter mis and disinformation is to have a really well-educated community and population. And that goes beyond just like, what's newsworthy, right? We have to be completely transparent in the way that politics works, in the way that drug development works, in the way that vaccine development works. We need to become more serious about eliminating data voids because a lot of times, well, I, as a journalist, when I started off, I was told to cut left and right because it was too much detail. Um, But that can sometimes be a disservice, right? I think we need people to understand the ins and outs of processes like elections, for example, as well, so that they're better armed when they're confronting uh, mis- and disinformation narratives on their own. All right, let's leave it there. Um, Jaime, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed. A quick programming note. Arbiters of Truth will be taking the next two weeks off. We'll return on the new year, on Thursday, January 7th. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.